in three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Mind Jam podcast. Let me tell you, today's guest is heralded as a goddess of nutrition. She's the author of six prize-winning books. She's been hosted on dozens of documentaries. She blogs at foodpolitics.com and tweets to her over 144,000 Twitter fans, which was named by Time Magazine, Science Magazine, and The Guardian as among the top 10 in health and science today. Dr. Marian Nessel, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. One of the things you said the last time that we were able to catch you for an interview is you talked about how important it was for nutritional diversity or the diversity of foods coming in and how that's just wise from a nutritional standpoint. But in veterinary medicine, in fact, some of the top veterinary nutritionists would argue that point. And they would say that scientifically formulated kind of all-in-one foods are the most appropriate thing we can do and that there's not a need for nutritional diversity. Can you help pet parents understand the differences or lack thereof between different species of animals and whether some require nutritional diversity and some don't? Or what's your take on why that's recommended, let's say for humans as a species, but sometimes for animals, veterinarians are saying it's fine to feed the same thing from birth till death. Well, I think the starting point has to be that um, the human and animal body, and it doesn't matter which bodies it is, require a certain number of nutrients and calories, energy, uh, sources of energy in order to survive. I and mean, we get that from food. There's no such thing as one perfect food. There's no one single food that provides every single nutrient that everybody needs in the proportions that we need it. So the, a basic tenet of nutrition is to eat lots of different kinds of foods because their nutrient contents complement each other. So if you are eating different kinds of fruit, you're going to get all of the nutrients that fruit provides. If you ate just one kind of fruit, you might not get that. So that's basic, you know, variety, uh, moderation, balance. Those are the, the kind of the basic boring principles of nutrition. But they work. And so people who eat, who vary their diets, who eat many, many different kinds of foods, those foods have to be relatively unprocessed, really don't have to worry about the nutrients they're getting because the nutrients are there. They're in the right proportion. They're going to work okay. You don't have to worry about it. You know, my understanding of dog evolution is they ate garbage. That's how we got to turn dogs into pets. Um, cats ate mice. That was not a particularly varied diet, but mice eat a varied diet. So when cats were eating mice, they would get the variety that way. Similarly, dogs, by eating various kinds of foods, would get what they needed. But we now have house pets, and house pets live in a controlled environment. And so the pet food industry evolved to solve a really serious problem, making sure that dogs and cats got the kind of nutrients that they needed in the correct proportions. And the pet food industry has solved that problem reasonably well. I mean, there are lots and lots of dogs and cats in the world who subsist on pet food, and they do okay. 
um, there's a question of compared to what, and I hope we'll get into that because I wish we had more research on compared to what. But the pet foods do that. And so you have this sort of counterintuitive thing where dogs and cats are being fed highly processed foods, which is what we tell humans to avoid, that contain all of the nutritional value they need because they're made that way. And so that's kind of odd. It's sort of unusual. And I'm fond of saying that all pet foods are the same because they all contain exactly the same level of nutrients and they're all highly processed. Exactly. And, you know, it comes back to that term nutritionism right now, which people try to break down where in the pet food industry, you know, we, we, we break down these foods into like specific nutrients and then, you know, we give value based upon, you know, the definition of the nutrients that equal inside that bag rather than looking at food as a whole. I remember leaving New York when we were when we were speaking in our last interview and there was like a, a product came up and I was looking at this product that's called like Soylent and I had no idea what that was. And, and I, I was in New York and I, I turned around the back of a bottle and I looked at it and said, this is complete nutrition from A to Z. You don't need anything else in your life because we have such a variety here in this bottle. So my brain went to how much of this is, is perception and how much work do we have to do in changing people's belief system of, of like, what food actually looks like to even talk about variety? Well, I think different people have different views of um, what diets are about. One of the things that fascinates me about nutrition and I just love about it is people's crazy ideas about what they're supposed to be eating and what they think is good for them. But people can survive on a very, very wide variety of diets as long as they get the nutrients they need and the energy they need. And I'm betting that dogs can too. Uh, that, that the kinds of diets that can be fed to dogs are extremely varied, provided that they contain the nutrients that, that, they're, that they require to have. What you don't know is whether the dogs would be healthier and live longer if they ate one kind of doc diet and another, because that research simply hasn't been done. As a human nutritionist, what would be your reservations if it does have all the amino acids, protein, fats, carbs, everything you need, and all the vitamins and minerals, what's the downfall, Dr. Nessel? Have you ever tasted Well, and, and I never will. I have not. But I've also never tasted dog food. But it's, it's the same thing. Would there be an argument against using something like Ensure or Soylent or kibble, would you say, fine, it's everything you need? Or would you say, you know, over over time, I have reservations? I'm just not sure. We didn't evolve to eat Ensure or Soylent, even if they were perfectly done from a nutritional standpoint. And I'm not sure they, they are, because there's a lot we don't know about components of food and the value of components in food that may not have been measured or, you know, people can survive without them, but maybe they have uh, benefits or health benefits that we don't know about or that we think might be useful. I mean, there's some uncertainty there. Can people survive on it? Yes, they can survive on it. Uh, can they survive for a long time? We don't know. We haven't done that experiment yet. So that's, I think, where we are with pet food, um, is that you've got a product that works. It works for most pets. How well it works is debatable, and there are lots and lots of debates about whether this is an appropriate way 
defeat an, defeat an animal or not. So it's hard to talk about this. What I've wanted always was research to demonstrate uh, that any difference between uh, the health of dogs and cats eating the same pet food over and over and over again, and the health of dogs that are fed completely different kinds of diets or different kinds of pet food. We just don't see that kind of research. So here's my question about humans that are trying to make better decisions. And we're in a generation where a lot of children are eating ultra-processed foods on a regular basis. But I think a lot of people are beginning to recognize that if they're going to serve their child mac and cheese or pizza, that you could do some apple slices or celery and carrots. You would do something alongside some ultra-processed foods to try and up some nutrition going into your to your child. In veterinary medicine, it's pretty interesting. Rodney uh, has done a TED Talk about this where taking 20% of ultra-processed foods for pets out and replacing it with 20% fresh food would be a great idea to increase the nutritional value of an Mm ultra-processed food for pets, which seems logical and great. And the pushback from some board-certified veterinary nutritionists was a little shocking to me. And actually, I think a lot of our community that we're having our experts say, don't do that. And there again, there's this shift between humans trying to improve the quality of their nutrition, knowing that ultra processed foods taste amazing and most people like them a lot, but they're not maybe the best for us. So we offset that by eating some fresh whole living foods. When we try and introduce this concept of eating or feeding some fresh whole living foods to pets, there's a war occurring in veterinary medicine. Can you talk about that? Well, we wrote our book, um, Feed Your Pet Right, it's misleadingly called, because it's really a book about the pet food industry. But at the time that we wrote it 10 years ago, um, we were told that veterinary students weren't taught anything about nutrition, or if they were taught something about nutrition, they were taught by pet food company representatives. And the reason for not focusing on the nutrition of animals or small animals or large animals was because they didn't have to worry about it because the AFCO defined products, the complete and balanced products took care of all the nutrition. And all you needed to do was to pick, you know, was to choose one. So you're dealing with a population of professionals who really don't know much about this. It's the same of do- the same is true of doctors, by the way, I'm not, criticizing veterinarians or singling out veterinarians. Um, But I'm not aware of very many veterinarians who are interested in this topic and want to take it to another step. Uh, There are some, but they're few and far between. Rodney, you had a picture once uh, with a bowl of kibble where you took out a handful and put in some fresh foods, and you had quite a few comments. What was some of the pushback you received from offering blueberries to your dog? Yeah, I'd like to hear that. What are the dangers? I mean, it was, it was a very fascinating study done by Purdue University where they wanted to know if adding a, a bowl of whole live vegetables, and they broke it down into two categories, green vegetables and orange vegetables. So, of course, like kale and broccoli and you know spinach, whatever comes in the green categories, and in your orange categories, your sweet potatoes, your carrots, and maybe like uh, orange peppers or whatever the case may be. Two broken categories, three times a week. They reduced a little bit of kibble from the diet, and they added these fresh, fibrous, rich food groups of the into a bowl of kibble, 20%. And it was a 
I believe, a 12-year study done on Scottish Terriers who are prone to bladder cancer. And when the results came out, it showed that there was a 90% decrease in the risk of bladder cancer in these dogs when given green vegetables and a 70% reduction in the risk of bladder cancer when given orange vegetables. So it shows the benefits of these fibrous vegetables. Well, the pushback that came back from the industry was when you are reducing our foods, our ultra-processed food diets, when you go in and you haul out 20% and you're bringing in these other forms of fresh foods, you are unbalancing our diets and you are decreasing the amount of synthetic minerals and vitamins that your pets should be getting. And it literally struck fear into the hearts of all of these pet parents around the world who said, oh my gosh, we should only be feeding ultra-processed food diets to our pets because mixing anything fresh could potentially harm our pets. The idea that there's a 70 or a 90% reduction in bladder cancer from a dietary change is, to me, incredible because in certainly in human nutrition research, you would never see a result that big. Uh, the results of changes in, uh, in dietary research on humans show very, very small changes. Small, they may be very significant changes, but to get, an, to get a change that 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 is that big is really astonishing. And I would want to see that study repeated and want to see other versions of that study. You wrote an incredible book, The Unsavory Truth, which brings us to this term industry-funded research. Because first of all, not very many pet parents around the world even know what industry-funded research is. And of course, in the pet world, I'm just throwing a number there. I have no science behind it, but I'm going to assume at least 90% of the research that's come out in the way of pet food research is industry-funded. Can you talk to us a little bit about this term industry-funded research? With respect to pet food, you have to ask the question, who, who else would fund research? The kind of industry-funded research that's going on now is really marketing research. It's research to demonstrate that a particular product does miraculous things. And certainly in human research, where you have government-funded research and industry-funded research, when industry funding gets into it, it skews and biases the research. I get letters all the time from food companies or trade associations saying, we've got $50,000, we're looking for studies that will demonstrate the benefits of our product. That is a biased question. Uh, it's not an open-ended scientific question. They're not going to fund studies that are likely not to show benefits. And I think it's for that reason that the basic observation of industry-funded research is that the results of that research almost invariably comes out with results that favor the marketing interests of the sponsor. Pet food companies are not interested in funding studies that might show something wrong with their product or show that their product is no better than any other product. I mean, that's when we get back into the study that I want done. The most expensive, complete and balanced pet food versus the cheapest complete and balanced pet food. Who's going to pay for that? Um, the company that makes the cheap one doesn't want to show that a more expensive one is better. And the company that makes the more expensive one doesn't want to risk showing that it's no different than the one that's cheapest. So there's nobody who wants to fund this kind of thing. And it's not being done. 
In the pet food industry, a lot of these big companies like, you know, the, the Mars Inc., uh, the Nestle Inc., the Colgate Palmolives, a lot of these companies will donate a lot of money to universities. And I know when I was speaking with Dr. Jason Fung on this, he went crazy. Basically, the statement was, nowhere in this world would it be acceptable if you are a police officer in New York City and I was to walk up to a police officer, let's say before a court hearing and say, here's a slice of pizza that I bought you before we go into court. He would lose his job if he accepted the slice of pizza from me. Or if a soda company was to walk up to a teacher and say, Here's a $100,000, Professor so-and-so, I think you're a great teacher. It would not be acceptable to any parent who had a child that that teacher's taking money from a soda company in case he talks about sugars being okay in foods and so on and so forth. So in our industry, in the pet food industry, you see it all the time where the industry will donate copious amounts of money to these universities, and then these same companies will ask these universities to fund studies for them. Now. The jury is out on this, but it seems like a lot of the people that I talk to say that a lot of the research would be potentially biased, that universities should not be accepting these sort of funds from these, this industry. What's your take on these nutrition universities in our pet sphere accepting monies from, from, from the industry? Well, I think it's a huge conflict of interest. And when, when we were writing Feed Your Pet Right, uh, it was common practice for pet food companies to give free pet food to students, to veterinary students who had dogs or cats. And we, um, we had a student researcher who went and took photographs of the giveaway day at Cornell's veterinary school. Um, and there were just mountains of boxes of pet food and the students would get free food for their animals during the entire time they were in veterinary school. Guess which product they were likely to recommend to their clients afterwards. I mean, obviously, that's why the pet food companies are doing it. I understand that most veterinary schools have stopped that practice. Um, and that seems to me to be a very good change. Um, but again, if the pet food companies are teaching the nutrition classes, they're going to be recommending pet foods. And they're going to be teaching veterinary students how to distinguish between one kind of pet food and another, even if there's really nothing to distinguish. Foods for different breeds, for example, silliest thing I ever saw. They have exactly the same ingredients with slightly different proportions. Um, you can't believe it makes any difference. It's a marketing technique. Now, companies have a right to market their products. Um, that's how our system works. But I think there should be some limits on what they're allowed to say. But pet food doesn't get governed in the same way that human foods do. So I think they should be. Um, and the Veterinary Affairs Office of the um, FDA has been moved into the same unit as the group that regulates human food. I thought that was a good move. One of the things that I, that I was so fascinated with, Dr. Nessel, is your world-renowned in the human aspect of food and nutrition and then you turn around and you write these two like incredible groundbreaking books uh, pet food politics which the new york times had quoted you as bringing you know the melamine 
uh, scandal to the limelight. Why pick this book and to talk about melamine and, and, and so on? Uh, my partner, Mel Nesheim, uh, was trained in animal nutrition. And when I was writing my book, What to Eat, which is a book about general issues about nutrition for the general public, um, it was based in supermarkets. And w- what I did was go around aisle by aisle in the supermarket and try to talk about all the issues that came up about how to make food choices in that section of the supermarket. I was doing most of the work in the Wegmans supermarket in Ithaca, which at the time had one out of its seven center aisles of food products was completely devoted to pet food. I would pick up the cans of these products or the bags of these products. I couldn't read the labels. I just didn't understand what they said. But my partner could because he had been trained in animal nutrition and knew about feed labels. And pet food is labeled with with the, with labels that you put on animal feed. And so I said, if I don't understand these labels, probably lots of other people don't either. Why don't we get together and write a book? Um, and so we got a contract. And within a week or two of the time that we signed the contract, the melamine scandal broke. And this was the absolutely amazing thing where this company in Canada was selling a pet food that was killing cats and dogs. Uh, and what was absolutely astounding to me was this one company in Canada was producing a hundred different kinds of pet foods, some of them really cheap, some of them really expensive, but they all had the same ingredients. They were formulated from the same ingredients, just from different proportions. So what's going on here? This is an amazing story, and it was a food safety issue. I have a book about food safety, and I really wanted to find out what this melamine business was about. It turned out to be an amazing story where this melamine ingredient was put in to substitute for gluten of all things. Nobody ever heard of gluten at the time. Now everybody knows about gluten. Um, and tracking, tracking the source of the melamine back to these companies in China, um, where it, this whole thing was a fraud and how all of that came about was really a fascinating experience. It was meant to be a chapter in the book about pet food, but it got to be so long that it was published as a separate book, Pet Food Politics, which subtitled The Chihuahua in the Coal Mine. Um, Because I thought at the time that if pet food could be contaminated by an ingredient in China, human food could be too. And of course, after the right after the book came out, that's when they started finding melamine and infant formula in China, and it affected about 350,000 children. Um, I mean, a really shocking story. If you're not paying attention to food safety really carefully, things like this can happen. Talk to me about some other shocking things that you discovered, specifically when looking at a pet food label, because there's some notable things missing from pet food labels that are present on human food labels, let's say like carbohydrates. 
Well, calories was the obvious one at the time. Fortunately, I think calories are now being um, put in there, and I was really happy to see that change. But it didn't mention calories. It didn't divide the foods up into the categories that we're used to seeing. I think the labels on pet food ought to be just the same as the labels on human food, and that they could easily have a pet food facts label, just like they have a nutrition facts or a supplement facts. There should be one for pet food, and it would be very easy to do, and I don't know why they don't do it. Um, well, I do know why they don't do it, but the, um, you know, the companies would just assume that people didn't pay too much attention to these things so that they can keep doing it and still, and still keep using the ingredients they're using and putting things together in the way they're doing it. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting when we when we attended the latest AFCO meeting, um, and this probably would have been uh, about a year and a half ago. The the talk was, hey, maybe because of public pressure, it's time to put carbohydrates and list them on the bag of pet food. I mean, this is something that's gone. It's interesting. I have such old paraphernalia beside me of all old these old pet food labels and to go back into the 40s and 50s and see that you know the number one source of energy listed on these bags which is carbohydrates was actually on those bags and then as we morphed into the, like the 70s the 80s and 90s completely removed off of the product labels i remember when i was asking you know these questions to these uh you know these label definition members they said to me the reason why we don't put carbohydrates on on the packages of pet food is because it's just going to confuse the owner and he doesn't really want to know anyways so you know why bother listening it yeah i just love the, i i just love it when i hear statements like it's just going to confuse the public you know let's uh, th that whenever i hear that it's like this red flag that goes up in the air um here's somebody who's trying to hide something because i don't think the public is stupid they understand things just just explain it. You want somebody to understand something, you explain it. Um, you don't try to hide it. Um, so I have, you know, that's one of my red flag statements. And I think, oh, no, come on. You know, let's be, these days, the pressure is all for transparency. Uh, the pressure is for giving people all the information they possibly want. During the pet food recalls, one of the big surprises that came up during that uh, scandal was the number of ingredients that came from China that weren't produced in the United States. That was absolute. That was actually the trouble. Uh, that ingredient used to be produced in the United States. It was cheaper to get it from China, so it moved to China, and nobody was paying much attention. That's exactly what got me myself as, as a pet parent. In 2008, I went out looking for those chicken jerky, which just at around the same time as the melamine scandal, it overpowered the chicken jerky scandal. I was out looking for, you know, the best, most natural source of food that I could find my pets. And on all of those bags, I was buying them from like you know, my local grocery stores at Costco's. It's, it would say on the bag, uh, packaged in Canada. Uh, my feeble brain read the word packaged in Canada and just assumed that it was Canadian chicken. I had no idea that, you know, like labels, you know, that there's trickery within labels. As a pet parent, you got to be, you know, some of these companies too, I mean, just to stay on trickery, uh, like they create a brand called Organic, but it had not, there's nothing organic in the package. Like it would be like <laughs> Organic Bob's beef dog food, but everything on the bottom is just, his company was named Organic Bob's, but there was nothing actually no organic in the organic bag. organic ingredients. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, that that is part of the confusion 
in the pet food industry is that even the terms used, the legal terms that pet food companies have to use on their bags, those terms are actually owned by AFCO, which is a private organization. And AFCO's terminology for what goes in pet food and on the labels is quite different than our definitions of human food. So chicken, if we see chicken as an ingredient on, in human food, it's not the same quality, inspection status, any of those things as the, the chicken that you read on a pet food label. And I think that that's incredibly confusing and deceptive to some extent. Well, it is confusing because you have uh, people who are buying pet food who assume that what's in pet foods is the same as uh, what's in human food. Sometimes it is. Um, I remember being at a fish packing plant on a remote island on the Aleutians off of Alaska and going into this plant. And this was a salmon uh, packing facility in which uh, salmon fillets were being uh, packed. And then you ended up with this big rack of bones that had salmon in between them. And the salmon in between the bones was perfectly good. And I asked what was going to happen to it. And they said they sold it to a pet food company. And I thought, mm, lucky pets. They're getting some gorgeous fish. They're also getting the bones with that fish, but that's not bad. That's not bad. So it, it varies. I mean, sometimes it's, and sometimes pet food is made from the parts of perfectly good animals that humans won't eat, the organ meats and so forth, but they're perfectly nutritious and healthy. Um, so I'm not so troubled by that. I am troubled by some other aspects of it. And I think full transparency would not hurt pet food companies. It would help them. So Dr. Nessel, homemade diets are still incredibly discouraged against, even that, you know, all of us as pet parents were incapable of making kibble. No one can make a kibble, even if we tried. But we could make a complete and balanced homemade meal, and yet that's wildly discouraged. Talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Uh, when we were writing our book, we had a copy of this Big Hills nutrition, bo uh, nutrition Book for Pets. It's actually a very, very good book. And it got to the section on, um, you know, what went into pet food. And it went on and on and on about how you should never cook for your pets and you should never make meals for your pets. And then it gave recipes for dog and cat foods that were so simple. I mean, it couldn't be easier. You're feeding yourself and you're surviving why can't you feed your animals and survive i mean it just doesn't make any sense obviously it's really important i think veterinarians biggest concern is that if people do it wrong you could end up with malnutrition you know you don't want sure, to be missing sure. any of those critical nutrients but i guess from my perspective with really intelligent pet parents which is the vast majority of people who will be watching this interview know exactly that they would need to be following a recipe and recipes are not that hard to follow. It seems like that would be a really great way to move to, you know, exactly. We're capable of nourishing ourselves. We could be capable of putting together a meal for our dogs and cats. And yet veterinarians don't recommend preparing foods at home. Yeah. I mean, I'll just give them the benefit of the doubt. They're worried that people are going to do it wrong. So I can understand that. Um, and they've been convinced to think that because pet foods are formulated in the way they are, that they're an ideal choice. Um, you know, they're not a bad choice. Uh, they're, they're a choice. Uh, but if you people want to cook for their pets, uh, I mean, there's, 
the, the recipe is just, you know, you put in some vegetables, you put in some meat, you put in a little of this, you can, a little of that, just the way you feed yourself and make sure that they have enough vitamins. But that's really easy to do. Well, I love the fact that we can talk about making homemade meals and remove the fear component from it. Because that's, that's what I see is that a lot of pet owners, they have food fear. And I think that they've been conditioned to have fear that if they didn't buy it, that they could be missing something. And so there's this, there's this intense anxiety about fearing either certain ingredients or doing it wrong. And I think if we can remove the fear and recognize that probably homemade food, being that it's human grade and you're buying those raw materials from the grocery store, that probably is the best quality of food those pets have ever consumed. And if it's done in the right proportions, it could be incredibly nourishing. Yeah, well, lots of people cook for their pets and their pets do fine. Um, you know, I, I think that, vet, I, mean, I want to defend veterinarians a little bit. I think they're really worried about it. But then on the other hand, some of them sell pet foods. And if people are cooking for their own pets or making their own pet food, then that's a source of income that disappears. I think this probably happens on an unconscious level and people aren't even aware of it. But remember, veterinarians are not taught about nutrition. Um, so you're dealing with people who just simply don't know about it because it's not what they were taught. In defense of the veterinarian, like you say, where they're worried, a lot of it is peer pressure versus peer support. The veterinarians, like you said, they, they don't have the knowledge or the background, but the problem I think is that more pet parents are sort of talked out of taking that step, having that support from that, that vet that's their coach that says, hey, let me learn a little bit more or at least guide you somewhere in how to do this, you know, balanced, how to do this right, variation, some moderation, some balance. You know, Dr. Nessel, there's some scary studies out there that you see from these, you know, these same uh, industry funded universities that will constantly put out a study that says, hey, we analyze some of the recipes that these pet parents are making and they're all wrong. 80%, 90% of them are all wrong. Okay. Let's say that, you know, this is the case that they're wrong. Rather than telling everybody why it's all wrong, why not now come up with solutions to people that maybe want to feed less ultra processed food and inspire those with recipes or ideas on how to do it right? So I, I really do think this is more of a peer pressure than a peer support system. And it would be beautiful one day when, you know, more and more pet parents can walk into these clinics. How awesome would it be to walk in and see your vet and say, hey, man, you're feeding your dog too much ultra processed food start feeding them some fresh food, that would be an awesome thing to hear when you go in to see your veterinarian. I want to take my dog to that veterinarian. Yeah. I know one who's on this call with us who would do that. And, and let me just say that there is a growing number of not just general practitioners like myself, but there's a growing number of independent board certified veterinary nutritionists that are beginning to formulate fresh food diets, raw food diets, they're beginning to formulate home-cooked diets, they're really coming together and recognizing that pet parents are asking for this. And out of this, they're, they're doing exactly, Rodney, what you have wished for. They're banding together to be able to provide the information that pet parents are asking for, which is not just heartwarming. I think it's That's the wonderful. beginning of change in the industry. 
That's really wonderful. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. Dr. Mary Nessel, I'm so excited that you, you took the time out of your day to help Mind Jam with us to the pet parents around the world, Pet Food Politics, Feed Your Pet Right, two incredible books. I, I can tell you, Feed Your Pet Right put me on the path. I told you this one, we came to New York. It put me on the path and got me on the journey to where I am today. You've done such an incredible job. Uh, for people that want to follow you, Dr. Nessel, with the, the best place would be foodpolitics.com. Yes, and of course, at, at Marion Nessel on Twitter, which, you know, you're always tweeting some incredible tips. Uh, I want to thank you again today for coming out and for giving us the time. And we hope to bring you back again on the Mind Jam podcast. For everybody that's watching, stay safe, stay at home, and we'll see you again.